Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk Splits, where we bring together two former guests of the show that may or may not know each other. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and today we got not one, but two great returning guests from one incredibly legendary band adam and blake from jawbreaker are back on the show more on that in one second but first if you want to get in touch with us over here email the email address turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com there's also tiktok youtube facebook and instagram pages all for turned out a punk those can be found on uh turned out a punk on those platforms you can find me on twitter or instagram at left for damien I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. Just announced we're going on tour with the Damned. Oh, my God. Uh, in the East Coast in the fall, we got some stuff happening in Europe. I think we're playing Primavera and uh, where, I, where I saw Jawbreaker, actually. We talked about that in the show a little bit. Uh, and uh, so come on out. Come out to those shows. All right. On to today's show. As I said off the top, today on the show, the legends from the band Jawbreaker, my friends, Adam and Blake. Now, if you listen to the last time they were on the show, Blake was on a long time ago. Adam was on a little more recently. Uh, we uh, we kind of like dove into how Jawbreaker's like a kind of unique band. They get lop, lumped into pop punk. Some people lump them in with emo, but they kind of occupy another space. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that I got a chance to kind of dig deeper with not one, but the two of them. If you have not seen Jawbreaker live, you have an incredible opportunity this fall in certain cities. <laughs> not everyone. Certain cities on the East Coast of the United States and I think some of the Midwest too. You can find out more details about all those shows and where to get tickets and also where to get your uh, your Jawbreaker records over at Jawbreaker Band. Dot com and uh, there's some tour dates coming up. They're playing with our buddies Joyce Manor, and uh, so go ahead and say hi to those people. I wish I could be at those shows and Grumpster too, who I've not met, I don't think. But uh, say hi to all three. Have a good time at those shows because uh, legends, legends. Uh, also check out the episode with Adam's sister Kembra as well because that kind of plays into this episode as too. All right, I don't think I have to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Adam and Blake on Turned Out of Punk Splits. Adam, Blake. Blake, Adam, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Again. Again. Well, I'm I'm floored to have you both back here because as you both are very much aware I am a huge fan of your band, and I, I'm in. I'm surrounded by some of your records here. I recently went to try and buy a copy of the live record. I'm like, oh, you know, what, what would it cost me to get a copy of the the live LP? It's up to around two grand now. So unfortunately, I don't have a copy of that lying around. But I, I definitely am a fan, and it's a thrill to have you back here. Thanks. What do you, do you think that if we repress that record, that it would plummet in price? Right. I don't think Is so. That a- is that a dick move? Like, I 
it's not a i don't know like i think it, all, all bets are off now right like you know you're a band you can break up for a year you do a final tour and then get back together and do a reunion tour like a year later and it's, it's it's fair game now you know you can do commercials now like oh there's all these things that bands like yourselves got got crucified for not even coming anywhere near close doing in terms of quote-unquote selling out and you know now it's all fair game so I, I think yeah the least egregious sin would be repressing this record and i think actually people would be very grateful if you did and uh I don't think it would affect the price, to be honest, because people collect records now like they collect Pokemon cards. It's no longer about music. It's about... Right, right. Totally. These are the people that have those final display racks for their wall. You probably buy at Ikea. Yep. Yeah, I got... You can I have, got... like, your television marquee moon and, like, your germs. Right? They're, like, eight LPs. If you went to if you went to IKEA and got one of those things, Blake, what would you rep? What I would, would have to put in? all Swedish rock. I'd have some ABBA and some Robin. Nice. And uh, I don't know, Care Bears, whatever that band is. <laughs> I don't know much. Do you like? Did you like that cover of Dancing on My Own that I sent you? I, you know what, I didn't listen to it because I'm just a bad person, basically at this point. Terrible. Yeah. I I thought you were going to say Swedish rock like the helicopters, but man, you got some soft rock taste. Sure, I'd put the helicopters in there. <laughs> I don't, I'm sadly, I just don't know that many. I have, that's probably the last one I know. That's three. I feel like uh, Sweden is a country that is definitely punched above its weight in, in punk stuff and metal stuff and, and certainly pop music, as you brought up. And I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that they had these, like, apparently government-sponsored practice spaces and demo studios where all these bands could, like, just book time and kind of go down there as a community center type thing and and make music. And, like, look at what happened. Like, this country put out everything from Entomb to Robin to Millencolin. Right. Millencolin? Really? Yeah. You know, it's a culturally incredibly rich country some of the best detective television that's out there oh yeah i don't know if they get free studio time order but it's usually swedish tv that's producing these shows and they're the best well it's well-funded arts right like you're right like they uh oh i love your tim hortons mug by the way um but it's it, i'm glad you <laughs> caught that my mom <laughs> sent this to me from nova scotia as you go know. to timmy's yeah, as you know, Canadians are always desperate for any acknowledgement. So I, I appreciate the shared mug culture, Canadian heritage too. Um, but yeah, like it's it's well funded arts. You know, we have some of it up here in Canada, but I guess nothing like they have in England or, or Sweden to produce this stuff. But we got better than America, though. Yeah, we don't. We never really got. The, I don't think Jawbreaker were the uh, received any endowment along the way. Well, that can come now. You now you got uh now this is your museum years. Wasn't wasn't there like a like a like a duo from there that famously like wrote like crazy amount of like number one hit pop songs? Was it was it a yeah? From uh, what are they called? It was like the people that like wrote Avril Lavigne hits, right, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but like for decades, apparently these people were writing everything. Yeah. It seemed I kind of caught. I didn't really. Is it called the Matrix? Was it called like the Matrix know. or something? I don't know. That just popped in my head. I will, there's probably like some 
deep obsessive Swedish pop fan right now screaming at their computer in, in totally. rage that we don't know this stuff. Yeah, uh, let us know in the com let us know in the comments. Because yeah. you know I love reading those comments. <laughs> it's a uh I don't know, it feels like you guys though would be prepared for it, right? Because you had to deal with a lot of shit during the DGC time. Like that was a time when like I said, bands were still getting crucified for these things. We got a pre we got a relatively thick skin, I think. But maybe um but you know, still stings. I think that's the thing, it, it stings the whole way. You know, there's people that have come on this podcast that remember bad reviews they got in '84 and like word for word remember the bad review. Like it's 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 stuck with them and uh you can't help but sting a little bit. Yeah, totally. I can remember a couple word for oh, word. Yeah. No, you remember those way better than any praise you get. I think I, I find this true. All my friends say the same thing. You always remember your like your detractors. Is it? Do you right? But is there because there's a kernel of truth in what they wrote about you? Like that makes it that makes it hurt a little bit more, cut a little deeper. Well, uh, I'm sure. Sometimes. What I what I really what what stuck with me were the non-committal reviews when when Dear You we did a lot of press for Dear You and like features in major newspapers and every one of those would never say anything good or bad about the record it was just like they're poised to be the next thing big thing question mark this kind of coquettish <laughs> like just fucking media 101 you know yeah yeah and you spend right. like a whole day or two with this person and you're like oh oh i see yeah and, may and maybe even get along and you know have a couple of laughs and then you go to read it later and it's like this terribly like you know it's just like they're this passive voice shitting yeah. on you <laughs> exactly just passive shitting <laughs> i mean but hey you know at least that was like there was some level of accountability. You could go to the, find the newspaper. Now I can't even imagine the hatred people get just randomly online. I, I think it's that. I think there's also though a level of, you know, and I'm not throwing it around lightly, but like psychotic adulation that you also get online, which is probably equally unhealthy in a lot of ways, you know, like there's, it's almost like, bands musicians artists i guess youtubers it's 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 become more religious levels of fanaticism and you certainly see it in politics too the way people look at these politicians as being sort of these infallible gods you know and put them on these pedestals or you know the way people like get so fiercely loyal about bands now like i feel like it feels like there, you could be a lot more passively into culture at a different time than now where you know every time you listen to a song you're kind of like contributing to that artist in some sort of way, or there's, you know, these sort of like diehard fan bases that exist online. Like, it just feels like there's a, uh, on both levels, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of harder now, the, the hatred and the, and the love. Sure. Yeah. Harder. Well, cause you live, there's these two worlds and there's like the very inflated ballooning online world that more and more people kind of exist, spend time in. Yeah, and to you know, to coexist in both places is, seems to be really challenging, especially the younger you are, kind of the rawer you are in that element. 
Last time you were on the show, Blake, you mentioned uh, starting a fire at your uh, school, and that's why you got expelled. Um, <laughs> True. I'm Adam, ready to come clean about it. <laughs> Adam, do you remember when that went down? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> In the room? Or the hallway, right? No, it was a hallway. You're talking about... No, no, it wasn't. Are you talking about when you when when um when we went back in the summer and and there was like that there was like a big like a sign or something up against the the building. That was a different case. Oh, that exactly. was a, it. Was another one. Yeah, I've realized since you know doing some self examination that I have all the criteria of a of a murderer. <laughs> you know, like I was tough on my pets oh. when I was really little. I was a bedwetter. Yeah. And an arsonist. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, if yeah, not for punk rock, I would be probably gripping iron or underground. Yeah. Same, same, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. We know that about you, Adam. <laughs> yeah. If music hadn't intervened, you would have been in lockup for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, it is a place, though, that, that calls people that kind of need it that way. You know, there's a lot of people that, they come to this thing that like, where the hell would they be without this? Myself. I've included. heard so many people say that. that Wait, what, are, what other fire did you set at school? I, I lit the dorm on fire in Santa Cruz. Oh, in Santa Cruz. Oh, I thought you were talking about high school. Cause there was that, that what we did that high school night. Yeah. <laughs> Judgment night. Yeah. There was like, I think maybe we, maybe we flooded a room too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i was expelled from from the dorm at ucsc rich was there yeah okay <laughs> rich <laughs> rich came up in our in our talk um also the last time yes. I, I just went and listened to like our talk because i only i have but like five punk rock stories i didn't want to be redundant so <laughs> Well, we mentioned Rich. He was, he was our Red Harvest bass player. Yes, we did talk about Rich last time. Um, it was like a bunch of flyers that got burnt, right? That started the fire at Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. That's right. Uh, but, but, didn't John, you, but didn't you also get thrown out of? Um, <laughs> didn't we get busted also for throwing shit out the window in New York? Yeah. Or was that just you and Andy? Uh, it was. Well, you and I got in trouble for the pinball machine and then i it was my second offense when someone threw right. a bottle out the window at a party that's right so then i was asked to leave right wow wow um, a lot of uh a lot of shenanigans if jawbreaker wasn't a band it would have been a gang we're kind of a gang still though <laughs> i mean you we'll have fight. to be we'll fight you know you have to be when you're out there You've seen the footage. We'll fight. We'll come down off stage and fight. Yep. Damien, you're you're in a gang when you're playing shows, right? I'm a one man gang. I don't think fucked. I got beaten up at our show, and no one from fucked up was in this thing. What? <laughs> what was this? We played a festival in Europe a, a couple years ago, and uh, in Liverpool. But you and... got beat up a couple of years ago. What the fuck? Yeah, we've been five or six years ago now. Maybe maybe seven years ago. And uh, there was this group of guys fucking with this couple in the crowd, and I jumped in to the crowd and uh, tried to get them out of there with a group of people, and then it just broke into this giant thing and ended up getting stomped. And luckily, I didn't go unconscious, so I was able to keep myself uh, covered up, but I had like a boot print bruise 
right there on my face. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, we, we finished the set. Uh, we had we had expanded to a nine-piece lineup for that tour and had these backup singers, and they were sobbing because I was just bleeding from the face as I'm singing the last couple songs of our set. But You're telling me there was eight people behind you watching this go down? I don't think they saw it because it was kind of off to the side, but I think I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt on that one because <laughs> no one saved me. And to make it worse, the fucking Flaming Lips were playing in the background, so I'm hearing, do you realize as these guys are trying to stomp my head in. Oh, my God. Where was it? What country was this in? England. Oh. In Liverpool. They know how to tussle there. They do. Chavs. <laughs> they like to fight. Right. But anyway, uh, back, to, back to your criminal activity, let alone the ones that were committed against me. But Larry Livermore from Lookout Records also got uh, into trouble for lighting a fire. But he got money from it somehow and that's what started lookout records he told me when he was on the show wow oh really yeah he got like some sort of mental health diagnosis from it and then got a small um sort of welfare type thing for oh he got maybe he got ssi that that was a kind of a big thing in the in the san francisco punk rock world people getting on ssi and just kind of piecing out from the workforce he should have gone a little further north and before the fire wow. started. Well, yeah, they didn't want to go to McMurphy and the Chiefs. <laughs> you don't want to go too far north of that shit. Yeah. I thought that, I thought Livermore started lookout with like drug money, no? That's what I thought too. But he's like, no. He's like, actually it was from this you know, and, and he's admitting to something kind of also sketchy, so it's not like a better story. Right. Right. Or two things could be true also, right? True. Very true. And there is a little bit of weed in that part of the country, I've heard. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know what? The, we talked about it kind of, we touched on it a second ago, but there's kind of that MRR sword that cuts both ways in punk where, you know, like you, both you guys talked about how early on that was a place that people would hear about your demo or like that was that was the punk news information source. But then at a certain point, it's also kind of the first place, certainly the first place that I got my, <laughs> the first really bad review for my band. And it's almost like, I don't know, it, it, it's almost like, I guess it's not the same sort of function at this point, but for years it was this thing that would make you and then ultimately cut you off. And I guess that's the thing that kept Maximum Rock and Roll going was the fact that it was always going to be this turnover. Yeah, it's a, yeah, well, well it's, it's a transitory place, right? Or it's, I guess I guess it's somewhere that people come and sometimes they move right through it, you know. Like there's very few people here still that were were there when we arrived. Maybe a handful, but you know. You know, it to me it also seemed like an MRR. You kind of almost got paired with a writer if you were, if you stayed in music, and that could be a blessing or a curse. Because sometimes the writer who hated you would just stick on you and like just just lambaste you and other times you might have a champion within the 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 city like we were treated pretty kindly for mrr like we did not fit the bill yeah so i'd say we got off very lightly because lance was in there writing reviews and stuff and we had you know we had ben weasel was doing columns and, and singing our praises until he until he wasn't um but yeah you're right i think we we got it was pretty good kid gloves on us 
until 90, the fall of 95, I guess. Right. And we kind of aged out of it too. Like they, why would they, they didn't need to write about us, for, you know, we, we just weren't in their world really musically. Yeah. It was so into kind of aggressive confrontational music. And, you know, here we were trying to find our voice and be artists like that didn't really have a place in that, in that zine. Right. I don't know. Like I, 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 I push back on that a little bit because it did have that kind of focus on that aggressive music, but then it also had, you know, like I read about yourselves or I'd read about, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss now. Diesel Queens is a totally different type of band, but they did cover anything that was really related to punk. And I think that's what shaped my kind of view on this music that as long as it somehow connects back to this thing, it's part of this thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to sonically sound like one type of version of it. That's true. I mean, a lot of experimental industrial noise, there was some really far out stuff in there. I just feel like kind of on the poppier songwriting end of the spectrum, under Tim's rubric of like, it must be ready for, you know, war. Like (laughs) there was a kind of outline, like you've got to be really contentious. That could have been my personal take on it. No, I think you're right on that because it's almost like there's an assumption by a certain segment of, of punk that any melody is going for it and any pursuit of songwriting is searching for commercial acceptance right like I, dude i'm just trying to figure my own self out <laughs> like to me melody is just a means to resolution within my troubled heart i like it's like people who are into math i think who like the beauty of an equation to me finishing a song is like completing an equation not in the algorithmic you know scooter brawn whatever this world is now but like it helps you heal when you round the last corner. You're like, yeah, that's where it stops. It began there. It climaxed here and it ended here. And I, well, I think it's with punk right from the beginning. Like I think hardcore is when there's a break because there's like this sort of further refinement and sort of this idea that like, you know, it has to be aggressive. It has to be faster than the thing before it. It has to be, you know, harder. I re- I just remember always. Like it was always the more melodic stuff that landed with me that spoke to me, you know. Like even with a band that's as fast and aggressive as like say I'm thinking of like an LA ver like 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 social distortion or channel three or like it was always like the stuff I put on mixtapes was always the most melodic stuff that those guys had to offer, you know? So I never looked at it like um, it was a bad, a bad thing, you know, or not punk. I mean, you know, I came up on the clash and the buzzcocks and, and we came up on all that SST stuff. And like a lot of that stuff, like me, pup is very melodic and not punk at all. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we were a little, maybe a little earlier in our formation, but it was really interesting to see, kind of post-hardcore like i remember playing with heroin we did a few shows with heroin san diego isla vista and up in uh maybe petaluma petaluma okay yeah that's right 
was Spitboy. But yeah. seeing that gravity kind of scene emerge, um, I don't know if they were on gravity, but you know that that yeah, like were. post yeah. post punk, post hardcore, just like I loved it. Like it because it was such a new kind of way of playing and um just seeing everything get blown out kind of into real chaos. Uh it was cool because it was totally a new a new way of playing. Mm. And into kind of Jehu, I guess, where you're just getting that both melodic and like completely untethered. Yeah, I was just gonna bring that up actually. It's funny that you mentioned Jehu. San Diego doesn't really get talked about in the way that Seattle does, but to me it's like way more interesting stuff kind of comes out of that after Seattle. Like you look at the same time you got that heroin gravity record stuff popping off, you're like you got that Jehu rock from the crypt stuff happening you've got like kind of unbroken happening and you have blink 182 stuff happening it's all kind of at the same time in the same place in the same like tiny little scene and like all the places that would go and all the people that stuff would influence in different ways but yeah they know that there's a documentary you may have seen about kind of san diego music scene it's on youtube it's really great oh, I gotta see it has this. a lot of um Truman's Water, Three Mile Pilot. It really gets into everybody. Um, sadly, Fluff, there's no O in there, uh, but there is his kind of Josh from Fluff is, has, has a headshot in there. Wow. Talking about what's really interesting is Ian MacKay, because he's in every, every punk rock documentary, <laughs> has this great point about like how he felt it was the cities in the shadow of the other cities. Yeah, but kind of San Diego, living under Los Angeles, created this shadow where this really rich, unself-conscious kind of music scene could foment and like turn into this just explosion, which was really rad. Yeah, yeah people shit on San Diego. It's like it's the Padres, you know. It's uh not the Dodgers. It's a it's a military town. It's a border town. People shit on it all the time. And, and it's, but it's also every... a very posh, posh and conservative town politically. Yeah. 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 Kind of ripe for like an insurgency, you know, or just people doing who are like, I don't want to do this. I want to I want to create something, an alternative to this. Yeah, yeah. So certainly there was some pushback on that. Like I remember remember the Shea Cafe? Remember playing the Shea oh, Cafe? Yeah. Totally. There's the Gilman of San Diego kind of. Yeah, totally. Such a cool spot. Yeah. And the Casbah too, right? Casbah for sure. Um, yeah, we were and we were always really well received down there. That was like a, a major stop for us. Yeah, so, for sure. Always big shows with great local bands and like people just came out. So I think we actually, I think we played the very last. Someone just sent me. I think Anthony Lou just sent me a flyer from Pitchfork's very last show, and it was us and Pitchfork. Because I was trying to remember if we had played with Jehu and we hadn't, but we had played with Pitchfork and and certainly like Hot Snakes, you know. Oh, that's awesome. You know, you brought up. I guess we could say rest in peace to a bunch of people right now uh, from San Diego. But you brought up uh, Fluff, and I can't believe I didn't bring up Fluff. But O seems like one of the people that did unite all these little scenes. Like he's someone who I think, you know, like just love this kind of music so much but he's like recording the blink 182 stuff at the same time that he's recording like rocket stuff early on he's still he's going to check out heroin shows and he's like 
he's like in all these different seemingly separate universes. Yeah. Omnivorous uh fan of, of the, the scene. Yeah, he was like the uh he was like the Lance Hahn of San Diego, you know. He was just every everywhere. And yeah. both of those guys are kind of like Zelig because you'll be just looking through archival photographs of Benedict. Oh yeah, of course. There's O right in the front. You know, or there's O, you know, in Trans World. Or there's O working with, you know, Big Daddy Roth or whatever, you know, he's just everywhere. Yeah. I think uh he's really I mean, I'm still like I still there's Oisms that I still use to this day just because they're just ingrained there's part of my DNA now. And me too. And Olive Lawn were fucking awesome. We played with Olive Lawn in, in uh at Spanky's in Riverside really early on. Yeah. Yeah, there's a uh there's just like so many unbelievable bands uh, that kind of come out of, of like, I guess all these kind of like places, but it's interesting how a lot of it is reaction to like the scene getting too violent that existed before and kind of like people being driven out and kind of splintered into different places. Like you see it happening in LA, you know, like I think the, the rise of that sort of country punk stuff and the, even the Paisley underground stuff and, and just, the the kind of like artier sst stuff like all that seems to get kind of a, a a push from all these people kind of fleeing these these shows that were just getting too violent and too too scary yeah yeah god you're just reminding me of like tex and the horse heads and blood on the saddle and all the and you know geraldine fibbers and all those kind of cool bands yeah and dwight yoakam was playing with some of those bands too, right? Like, you know, I just had a Dwight Yoakam epiphany of state New York. I was camping or glad I'm not going to use that word. Rented a cabin <laughs> with a friend and it came with a record player and some you Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> it, but we really were, we were like a really luxury cabin and uh, there was these Dwight Yoakam records there. So we were playing them and that guy is amazing. I loved his acting. I knew him more as an actor. Mm-hmm. And I knew he was like Twin Cities, punk rock kind of, I think like he would play with Husker Du and stuff back in the day. I mean, be on bills with them. Yeah, like he definitely went to L.A. and like there's flyers with him playing with the Blasters. And he talked about going to see Black Flag play back then and really getting into that scene at that time. It's uh, there's like all sorts of like Katie Lang. Katie Lang was a punk up in Saskatchewan back in you the can day. Tell. You can tell the haircut, the like, I mean, just the best style. Yeah, it could only come from a kind of a punk rock queer background. You have that and, chop, you know, Twin Peaks kind of Asian <laughs> Cooper, like the Dale yeah. Cooper look. It's so yeah. rad. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of like uh, a, a great like not to overly idealize punk because there's there's a lot of terrible shit with it too. But at the same time, it's a place where you're going to find so many interesting people coming out of it because it's one of the few places you can go as someone that doesn't fit in. And there's a lot of people that don't fit in. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always shocked when I, you know, I'll tune into your, to the podcast and, and be like, Oh shit, really them they're, they're a punk rocker. It's so cool. I find you can tell now, like you just, anytime I like anyone and I find anyone interesting, I'm like, there's going to be something, there's going to be like some weird little connection yeah to, to things 
you know totally it even actually jack when jack black was on he was dropping all this stuff and i went back and re-listened the episode and actually started researching stuff and i'm like my god there was stuff that he was dropping that just wasn't on my radar because he was much more of like an sst kind of cult type thing which seems like that was like a like a little separate subsect of things like sst is kind of its own world do you ever see a band called yeah. mustard in la yeah oh, yeah they went to our high school wait you guys went to that high school too with jack uh -huh. yeah oh shit, that's crazy and maya rudolph went there too yep that dog a lot of a lot of folks yeah uh, yeah yeah the, all the hayden kids went there i thought we talked about this in in the episode no no oh i thought for sure we that we hit on that no we didn't talk about this at all because now you're blowing my fucking mind because i i know like all, i researched mustard and then mustard became hedgehog and then yeah. hedgehog was on hg yeah and, and yeah and hedgehog was on uh, hg fact out of japan and fucked up did a record on hg fact so that's how i connect to this little little world but this is blowing my mind oh you guys are connected that's fucking crazy daryl goldfarb daryl goldfarb yeah and the treacherous jaywalkers yep. james Fenton and josh hayden they were an sst i think they did an album for sst they were they did, at our I think they did two. they might have done two and quinn haber yeah those yeah we know all those guys so was they were, like they were a couple years younger than us but always playing music so it was like SST huge in your high school? Because it seems like there was a lot of kids with connections to that kind of world. It was a small group, but but that was the label. I feel I felt like that was our we felt like it was our local label. Because at the at the time, like when we were going to show or when I was and Adam and I were going to shows together, I felt like the Minutemen played every other weekend and you'd have slovenly or like those kind of lower tier SST bands. Yeah. Um, who were all really interesting, but yeah, DC, DC nine, you know, DC three, DC three. Yeah. Look, those kind of projects were, were happening all over the place. And like, that's the interesting thing too, because for me prior to like, well, there was always a different quality of jawbreakers music. Like you could always, it didn't sound like you guys would have fit in on fat records or or epitaph you know there was like something different to your music but it wasn't really till i talked to you guys that i realized like how much of your musical dna is kind of the same musical dna that goes into like sonic youth or 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 dinosaur jr or like that sst world or that kind of um i don't know like steel pole bathtub too like who you brought up last time like that i would put them in that too like it's a much more uh I don't want to say like intelligent version of punk, but it is like kind of like a more uh, artier and and a more kind of like let's let's leave it an artier approach to things. I I can yeah I can see that. Well, I think in our case too, it was film. I mean, I know with you, Adam brought in tons of samples from from old movies or just favorite movies and like trying to figure out how to make your own sampler, you know, which was a, a real technical challenge for us. Uh, Mike from Steel Pole taught me their trick, which was just to have a power strip and a tape recorder plugged into it that was playing, and he would kick on the power strip whenever they wanted their sample to play. So then the little, you know, 
flat tape recorder and start playing and that was mic'd or directed direct outputted. Yep. We tried totally. that for a bit. It was a total nightmare. Like you unplug it every time you get psyched. But you know, a little little MacGyver action. It was pretty rad. <laughs> I guess that's why like bands like Mission of Burma had someone in charge of tape loops. Because you kind of do need someone just to just to be there just to flick that power bar button. It's it's easier to do with your finger than your foot. Yeah. yeah. Well, now we do. Now we 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 trigger our samples either from the front of house or from monitors, and 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 yet still, our our method is totally like anachronistic, right? It's <laughs> what's that machine that we use, Blake? It's like no one makes that thing anymore. It's it's so not what it's a looper. Are. Yeah, it's one of those early looper pedals. You could store like ninety nine samples in it. So yeah, it works. Yeah, exactly. It works. Sometimes it goes sideways, and sometimes that's great too. That's I, I like, and now I realize like when shows go sideways or something happens at a show, and it's not perfect. Those are those are what I want to see happen. Like not oh, that, yeah, because you know, as a musician, it sucks to go through it as you're living through it. But I think as like a fan, like to know that you were there for that unique version of that event is is like, it, it's awesome. Yeah, those are my favorite moments. Like, Nothing is more boring than a, a show that goes off without a hitch, you know? I, it's I, always I, really my interesting. My favorite is when we all three are completely off. Like that's that's where I love it most. Because <laughs> we inevitably will get back to, to the one together, but it, I, I find it hysterical while it's happening. Like it doesn't make it's not a nightmare for me. I think it's hilarious. I've only gotten to see you uh, guys play the one time or twice now. But uh, I remember the time in Primavera and Blake. You had sunscreen running into your eyes throughout the whole set, and it became kind of a narrative to the show. You know, like obviously you're there for the songs, but I also love that the fact that you do have this sort of narrative arc to the story to the show that's being told throughout the thing about. It's nice that when you find a little line for just one show, a narrative, you know, be it sunscreen or like yeah. some imaginary peeve you have. I love when, when people on the mic do that, kind of create a thread just for that event. I, I remember going on tour with like a big band and they're playing like some big stadium thing and we're opening and the same night, every night they're saying the same shit on stage. And uh, I was like, oh, oh yeah. God you know but now i'm like i saw that re i saw that really recently because i went to three show i went saw a band that they were playing three nights in a row and the first time they they had a little spiel that i was like oh that's cool what a what a what a cool little moment there that i was privy to and then they did it again yeah same yeah. same same part of the set like it and then they did it i think a third time maybe and and, and it kind of kind of soured me on them it, it, but you can't help but do it right like you're up there every night like blake's saying you got to find something if you don't have a narrative arc to kind of fill that space in between songs yeah know? but all, all the all he would have all the guy would have had to have done was say ah, yeah i mentioned this last night but dot 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 like just yeah. say that yeah don't try to make it like it's just coming out of the clear blue sky I, uh, yeah, I, I want to say something here, too. Please. I go live every show. That is I've, never, I've never repeated my shtick, and I don't plan anything. For the, for the little parts where I talk, it's always on the fly. For better yes. or worse, 
if I'm in, if I'm having a bad time, I might be, I might say nothing. It, it sucks, but I've <laughs> never scripted a gig. I might think a little bit about the theme of that evening, a little callback for the, for the boys in the band, you know, like something we were joking about that day, but I'm just going to say that I'm putting that out there. Right. It's true. I, yeah. I could verify that because I'll even, I'll leave it like before the show, I'll go up to Blake and go like, yo, it's so-and-so's birthday. You should give him a shout out. And he never does it. I never do it. <laughs> But it, it well, really only because I completely go blank when we start. It's not like anti that person's birthday. It's just like I have no idea what's you no. Know, you you kind of do go blank when you get up there. Yeah, hundred percent. Blake will go blank. I'll, Blake, will, I'll I'll call him back to the kit and I'll go. Yo, it's so and so's birthday, and he turns around and walks ten feet, and he's forgotten it already. <laughs> I relate. I fucked up someone's wedding proposal because I forgot to do it in the middle of our show. Like like you said, Blake, you're up there. You gotta focus, right? Like, if you stop believing you can fly for a second when you're up there, you crash to the ground. Like it is, it's hard. Yeah. How do you remember? Sure. A lot how of do you words remember the words? Like, right? Poorly, poorly. For my case, <laughs> I have to stay blank to keep the the words in order. Or 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 do the kind of method thing of like really let go in order to grab hold. Mm -hmm. When I you know we I'm sure you have this, Damien, but Chris and I talk about this all the time. Like if you ever start thinking about a part that's coming up that you're worried about, you're gonna blow it. A hundred percent. I have uh -huh. to not I have to pull that worry out ahead of it coming down the line so I can get it. It is. It's like it is the. Uh that's the art to it is like getting up there and clearing your head. And like you're saying, you can kind of like express that you're having a bad time in between the songs, but when you're performing those songs, you, you got to put the bad time out of your head. Otherwise those songs are just not going to happen. And I've had, there have been only a handful, thankfully, but a couple shows where it's just completely crashed and burned for us. Like, <laughs> Do you have a ritual that you do you like have a warm-up ritual or like a kind of a clear your head ritual before you play smoke as much weed as possible real interesting yeah i i find if i can float on stage that's my ideal but i think that's just like you find your thing right like how many weird shit things that i try not to lose my voice i mean you must have been told like a million things over the years blake like not to lose your voice like oh drink loquat honey or don't drink any sugar or drink sardine oil or like all this sort of crazy stuff that you're supposed to do. But if you get relaxed, you're not going to blow your voice. Yeah. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've, I find really trying to pace yourself is a huge part of the, the plan that works. Like you want to come, come out strong, but it, like, I find if I just, if I can keep it at 85% for the first 20 minutes, I'll, I'll have that 15% when I need it at the back end. Uh, I wanted to ask you um, about this last time, but I forgot to ask you. But uh, did you guys ever see Joe Coleman? Speaking about performers that just let it go completely. Uh, no, I know. Yeah, I know, I know him by name. I saw there's a video online of the first voluptuous horror of Karen Black show, and Joe Coleman's kind of like the MC throughout. It blows himself up and does all that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. you know, those are those are the people that really inspire me. Like 
you know, your sister, um, Joe Coleman, like these performers that go out there and just let it all go and can just completely immerse themselves in that performance. And you know, that's, that's the dream to like be able to go out there and just like forget that audience and just be the performance. Just blow it up. Literally like Coleman did. Yeah. I went, I spent the day I spent a day with him and my sister in um in Echo Park. We took a paddle boat ride on the lake. And he was showing me that he had filed his teeth down to enable him to more easily bite the heads off of mice for his live shows. And I, what year and I, was this? It was probably in the like the low 80s or something and i go i go what do you do for your day job <laughs> <laughs> i don't think he dug it i don't think you had to have a, jo- a day job in new york at that point it seems right no like it was so cheap for sure not Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We were, I was just talking to someone about Gigi Allen. I never saw Gigi Allen. Did you guys ever see Gigi Allen play? I didn't. No. No. I mean, I really, it really made me wonder because I know his legend, you know, which precedes him, obviously. But, like, I, it made me wonder what kind of person he was, like, in just regular life, you know? Was he completely insane? Was he totally unhinged? Or was he, like... It's just what he his night job. I don't know. I, I think it was like I think I think that was the thing you you heard about like that you know that first Gigi Allen comeback show when he gets out of prison and like Thurston Moore's in the band and Jay Mask is in the band and and they've got like you know kind of this like sort of star studded band together for Gigi to play his songs and I think everyone thought it was all just a joke and thought it because like there was no internet right there's no YouTube to see these performances so. Unless you're a Gigi Allen fan with tapes, you're just like hearing about it word of mouth or reading about it in Flipside or MRR. And apparently that first show back, everyone realized very quickly, like, this is not a joke. This guy is for real scary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it's been a while since I saw that that documentary. Um did who made it? Did Todd Haynes make that? Todd Phillips. Phillips, excuse me. Yeah, Todd it uh hated the uh there's That's also, right. and I think on the DVD version, there's a video of after the show of just Gigi, you know, walking throughout the Lower East Side, I guess, trying to escape police that have come or whatever, um, covered in shit and blood. And he keeps trying to get into these cabs and the cab drivers won't pick him up. But at one point, this total, like, I see as Upper West Side art couple comes running up to Gigi and they're like, Kevin, Kevin. And they've got like their small child with them, and they give their small child to Gigi, gives them a kiss on the cheek, and he's like talking to them. So, you know, Gigi's a guy. Oh, wow. 
he existed in two worlds, right? Like he was an art dude too. Yeah, amazing. Your sister must have been around him or seen him, right? Like, it's no, I think, like she, a, I think she knew him. Sure, yeah. Because it's kind of the same world, weirdly. It like overlaps, I guess, a bit. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she knew him because he was also in the Lower East Side, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the terrifying Lower East Side that you discussed going to back then. Yeah. When drug buckets were raining from the sky. Yeah. It's weird how punk always winds up being, though, the thing that ruins all these, not, maybe not ruins, but changes all these neighborhoods. You know, like the A7s down there and all these punk places are down there. Or look at the neighborhood around the Gilman or look at any number of places that have had great punk venues in them at different times in different cities or a lot of punks around there. And now it's just sort of condos and, and, uh, and chain stores. That's just, I think that's just the world now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I guess it's everywhere. And I guess it's been also the leveling that's happened where every city seems very much like a mall at this point and very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the the curse of the creative class, too, to be that that early wave of gentrification. So they have accountability in it, too, in the grand realty kind of capital realty scheme but they break ground in those places soften them up and then developers follow eventually and you're, you're constantly being displaced as you displace people with less for you i mean that was our story in the mission right like totally it was where we could afford to live in that city and then you know i just read a book called how to kill a city which is a great study of like four four cities in America and how that story replays itself in every metropolis. And the, the kind of the strategy of gentrification, as I learned it, was to bleed an area dry, kick, get all the residents to move out and then occupy it. And um, yeah. So. Yeah, it seems like what, it was like kind of what happened in New York you know, you hear talked about in documentaries and things like that, where you just had this sort of complete bankrupting of infrastructures in the city. So you just drove people out and buildings were literally being just set on fire. And then at that point you could buy up that real estate super cheap and redevelop it. And, and uh, yeah, you see it like, look at Brooklyn waterfront. It seems like anywhere vice had an office in the last 20 years. You know, we were like, this is crazy, but in Forgetters, we we practiced in the Death by Audio building. And I think Vice is now there. Um, the people who build the Death by Audio pedals were up above, and then they had this, this rehearsal habit trail maze of like chopped up this big industrial space that was cut into like 150 rooms. Every like scrappy band in Brooklyn was practicing. It was just like a hundred. Was that right near the river? Was that really close to the water? Yeah, yeah, in Williamsburg, though. Yes, I remember that spot because I think we practiced there once. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, then five years later, it's like completely everyone got evicted, and it came. Yeah, good point about Vice, though. And I think Vice moved out today. You know, like that's the that's the ultimate irony is like even the stuff that comes in afterwards is going to get wiped out, you know, and it's just going to be condos or it's just going to be big box retailers. And it's just going to be, you know, like because you can't stop 
gentrification at a point, right? Like it's just going to keep going. And so Vice managed to gentrify themselves out of the office space eventually. Let me tell you something as a Canadian on that subject. Thanks for Gavin McGinnis. Also Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it, was he living in the States now? Uh, I, th- I don't know. I got to be honest. I'm not trying to keep tabs on either of them. But uh, <laughs> Gavin. Not a Google alert for JP. Well, yeah, no, I'm definitely trying to hear his lead. Make your bed, Damien. Make your bed. I'm worried. I'm worried I'm talking about it right now. That's going to pick up on my algorithm on all my social medias. I'm going to have to put it up with more of his fucking ridiculous bullshit showing up. But uh, Gavin, Gavin's real directly out of Canadian punk, sadly. You know, like he was a Ottawa five Arlington going to show type kid, you know, going to these, these little punk shows in this basement and some some wire got crossed on the way and whatever happened happened well actually no i know what happened uh are you familiar with answer me fanzine sure you remember it was a you know the fanzine from the 90s uh jim goad who wrote that fanzine put that fanzine out that's like gavin's like ideologue like that is the guy that gavin just modeled himself after and sort of gave rise to the gavin mcginnis character that we know today as opposed to the gavin mcginnis character that used to exist where it was like you know a guy who identified i think as a communist even at one point certainly as a socialist and was in a band with people that would wind up in godspeed you black emperor you know like certainly not this path but yeah apologies for that (laughs) we've got i want to know how he slipped through the net of the whole j6 roundup like the i mean the proud boys cracked down like he he pretty deftly sidestepped that whole dragnet as a founder right like zero accountability i i think it's gonna well who knows when it's uh, when all those nets are gonna finish dropping on on all those people but yeah it was ter- it was weird seeing who was there and kind of terrifying to see who was there from different like you know the 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 actor that was on Mr. Show or people oh, yeah. indie rock bands. Well, back on to more pleasant subjects. Um, yeah, sorry, it, we, I feel like we got a little bit off track. Oh, believe me, this is part. This is the splits. It splits. It's just open. We can talk about anything and whatever. We don't. Have, it's no longer me punishing just about your punk journey. Now we're just just rambling, hanging. Uh, last time, uh, I think actually, Adam, you told me this. Uh, Blake, you kept a copy of Husker Du's New Day Rising in your locker at school? I Well, I I was so excited about that record that I had to, I didn't want to leave it at home. So I brought it to school with me just so I would be near it. <laughs> they are one of the greatest bands of all time, obviously. But um, it's just amazing how, you know, talk about melody and the search for melody. Like they were a band that I think very early on in hardcore realized that it didn't have to be about divorcing it from melody. You could find a way to bring melody back into it. You know what I find fascinating about that band now, especially is Bob mold, like his voice and his guitar had the same kind of distortion. He, he somehow had this perfectly distorted voice and that like completely blown out guitar sound was just like, I, only his guitar in Who's Produce sounds like that, like so distorted 
not overdriven, not fuzz, but like just, I don't know. There's something very akin and like whole about what he brought that dimension. Bob Mould is just this column, this pillar of distortion <laughs> and melody, you know. I wonder if it's from trying to, you know, like in practice where you don't have a good PA, you certainly don't have monitors. So you're trying to sing over your your amp so you could hear yourself a little bit. Like, I wonder if that's, because you're right, like there is a quality to his voice where there's, there's like a, a distortion to it. And it's like, maybe it's from trying to like, I know from being a vocalist struggling to hear myself in practices and given how loud that band was famously, I imagine a little tiny jam space that must've been, you know, you need it in your ears. Do you use those now? No. Yeah, um, I can't, I cannot. It'd be weird. It would feel, you know, but our, our, we also have like one guitar player that's obnoxiously loud, like to the point where people in the front row sometimes will complain to me. Like, can you tell them to turn down? It's like, I've been telling them to turn down for 23 years. <laughs> it's not going to start now. <laughs> the uh, getting back together now at this point for you guys, does it feel like there's like a different sort of way of communicating with each other? And there's like a different way of understanding each other than when you guys were together the first time? It is, I mean, it is, it is just, it is environmentally different. Uh, the con, uh, the, uh, we all live in different cities. So it's like automatically couldn't be further from what it was. But I think when we're playing, it's, it actually feels pretty familiar. I know from our prep sessions, like before Riot Fest, took it took about a week really to get in there but then it was kind of like oh oh yeah we're we're the same in the room together is that yeah, too big yeah, yeah no, the no. stage is definitely the same it, it's interesting because at a certain point if your band's together long enough you've been a band longer than you would have been friends before being in the band so at that point the band becomes the relationship in a certain way and it almost becomes yeah like something where you can just get up there and do it and no matter what the situation situation is between people before the hand on the, the at the show you can kind yeah. of get up there and still come together for the project right yeah i mean when i when when me and blake talk nowadays like we rare like if we have a conversation on the phone it's very rare that we even bring up the band stuff usually we're just talking shit about films or books or music or you know gossip but we don't really we don't really talk about the band <laughs> yeah it's kind of a chinese wall i think you need a little bit to keep your personal and your performing lives intact i mean because we all have friendships too like we did start as we started as a band and friends with chris we met chris via the band but we all hung out um i think as you as you as you do it longer you do have to figure out like you've got to partition your lives to make it doable and um yeah i think we kind of keep the there's like the re the friendship side and then there's the you know, you got to get your shit together. No, I'm just joking. There isn't really that, but there is the like, we got to learn these parts and have it together. 
yeah i guess we i'm i'm still learning that part of it like to to maintain the friendship side of things because it's it's hard because the 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 working together side like the you know even though you're joking the get your shit together side of things of being in a band can't help but spill over like the negative review i don't know well yeah certainly in in a band if one person's got a problem everybody's got a problem yeah you know you're all tied in that way yeah so yeah it teaches you a lot i think it really does teach you certainly having i mean i know this uh working with men which is seems to be from back in the day historically kind of the bane of the rock bands environment a working place you know how to work with men and not go brain dead and i i mean this and i'm not casting aspersion on anyone but i felt it a lot in just brazil we'd be touring and all these guy bands we were playing with there was just all men playing for the most part in the kind of post emo circuit or they whatever i whatever circuit i was on all right just you just see these groups of men that just didn't know how to talk to each other other than in very coded kind of safe ways. And you could, you could almost tell which bands were going to fall apart or, or we're going to just like put their heads down and just grind it, you know? And it really, it was, it was haunting, honestly, it just felt really like inert, not, not like fun or not creative and, I don't know. So if you do it a long time, you have to figure out how to relate to one another as human beings. And we're lucky in that we have three people who are all pretty unique. You know, I'm going to say it, man, not non-suburban, you know, urban people. I'm becoming an elitist. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) Well, you're glamping now, so. I'm an East Coast elite, so. (laughs) Glamping East Coast elite. (laughs) Glamping. My way into retirement. That's right. <laughs> uh, but you find these chemistries that just work. You know, like bo- both of you have been in other bands, and I don't know. Like maybe you did find chemistries that felt the same as Jawbreaker to you. But well, here you are in Jawbreaker, so I guess it wasn't the same. You know, there's there's just something about the three of you that came together that just, you know, like it's it still works. If you guys are still friends and able to still do this. You know, like that's that's something special. Like it, you know, you can search a whole lifetime and not find that. Uh, going back to the SST kind of world and that kind of sound of things, were those were those shows kind of like where you saw yourselves going with Jawbreaker? Like, was that kind of like, you know, prior to like sort of the scene that would emerge, the alternative scene? Was it like? when you're doing that band in New York, where you're like, we'll go back to LA, we'll wind up signing SST. I think that was the closest thing we could see doing. I mean, we, you know, we played it or we actually played there, but we, we went to the anti-club all the time. Not a great place, but great consistent SST bills. Uh, and I think it was, I don't know, Adam, you would know, but it was like our second or third show, wasn't it? At anti, yeah, um, or did it take us longer? It was it was an achievement. I know when we played there, when we paid to play there. Yeah, no, it was um. Let me look. Yeah, it was one of our earlier things. Yeah, for sure. 
that's LA uh, though, right? Pay to play shows. Yeah. 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 We you have to sell sell that. tickets to your friends. You yeah, know, it's maybe two hundred dollars worth of tickets, so they'd be guaranteed that 30, 40 people are gonna show up and buy their liquor, I guess. Yeah. Uh interestingly, beautiful uh little footnote here. The man the booker or manager's daughter was E. G. Daly of Valley Girl. Yeah, I think it was. Her, I think it was her mom owned the club. Actually, her, yeah. So we were always like hoping that EG would stop by, you know, just to get a glimpse. Yeah, if you want guess, my love? Say it. Say it. Right. <laughs> I think that's the thing about Los Angeles too. There's also like so much glitz so close by with Hollywood. Like there's always, it seems like, um, not as stratified as maybe it is but like it just seems like there's always some weird hollywood connection yeah yeah sure. I, th- I mean they're yeah they're out there living so you're gonna cross paths and inevitably well yeah and also we we you know the people that we were hanging out with it at at school like we went to a school that had like a lot of like people that were in like they're all into like you know it's like an industry town so our 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 school was very there was just like everyone you know every other person seemed to be you know their father or mother was like a you know you know from the movies or tv or something and a lot of those kids and a lot of their kids were just like just punk rock kids you know yeah and i guess that's a natural rebellion right like just you know if your parents have found you know success in whatever their field is like and you want to find carve your own way punk is the, the perfect place to do it I think, you know, sometimes it came from the parents, too, because they were young and hip enough to be in the L.A. art scene. I mean, I know one of our best friends, Laura, uh, her mom was a film, a costume designer for films, and she was friends with Lee Ving because she did Get Crazy. And, like, there were punks in the house coming by to hang out. So it was kind of, like, handed down to the to children, you know, oh, you should go see Lee's band. They're really fun. or <laughs> Yeah, she did kind, streets, of, kind of groovy in Streets of Fire sense. too, right? Laura Norton, uh, Rosanna Norton. Yeah, I think she did Streets of Fire because I remember that Lee Ving and, and uh, Willem Dafoe were like hanging out at her house. Right. Together? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I, I guess Lee, I guess Fear's like, you know, uh, even on the East Coast with, with um, doing the Saturday Night Live thing. Well, I guess they knew John Belushi probably from Hollywood. Right. He had moved out there by that point. And yeah. I mean, Lee was so, is so charismatic. It was like, that made so much sense to me that he would end up as a, as a character actor. It's like a kind of De Niro vibe, you know, it's very streetwise. And yeah. The he, wild always, he always reminded me of that kid, the kid in the dead end kids. You remember like the lead guy in the dead end kids or the Bowery boys? Like the, the comedy group, the Bowery boys. The um no, it was like they they did it was like a serial thing like um and they did they did some feature length motion pictures and like the I think they were around in the thirties uh, to the fifties I think I thought it was like a little rascalsy type thing kind of yeah but they were a little bit older they were okay. like a little bit more rough and tumble they were like you know teenagers okay I can't remember his <laughs> name but he always reminded me of uh, leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I the other the other day I heard this demo from '93 
and it's a fear lineup with Josh Freese on drums, uh, Scott Thunes, I think his name is, who was the bass player for Frank Zappa, and the guitar player from Atomic Rooster, and it fucking shreds. I just saw I just saw Fear play last or maybe two years ago at Riot Fest, and Spit Sticks was playing drums. Oh yeah, and um, they were amazing. And I went and I actually went up to Spit Sticks and I was like, I hate to be that guy, but I, I think I need a pair of drumsticks. <laughs> <laughs> and I got them. Awesome. They're sitting right over there. I think mean, that's awesome that you're still like that. I'm I've I've you know, I, I definitely feel like there's lots of times that I wish I had done that now and I'm like, fuck, I wish I had brought a record to get signed by this person or you know. Or ask them for for the set list or something. I, I keep I keep almost get. I have I have a a one sheet movie poster for X the unheard music. It says play this movie loud and it's got the big X, um, red against a black back background. And I'm like, I I always I because there's been so many opportunities that I could bring it and get those guys to sign it. I haven't done it yet because that's I don't know. It might be a, a bridge too far. To show up with like a fucking poster and just be like, hey. if you if you showed up with twenty posters or you know that's different, but I think one, especially something that cool, now you got to do that. I know, I know, I should have done it. I should have done it. I'll be other opportunities. I think the you know you're in the same kind of general uh, world. I do you guess guys I, ever, let me I ask know. you guys a question. Speaking of X, I have this problem where whenever I'm watching a movie with Patty Considine. I think I'm sure it's John Doe. Wait, which one is he? He's an Irish actor who looks like John Doe. <laughs> he was in The Girl with All the Gifts, and like he was in In America. That, uh, that oh great... yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good call, man. Dude, I was I was like on IMDb, like wow, I didn't know John Doe was in this. Patty Considine. Just keep that, plant that in your mind the next no, time. No, I, no, I get it. I can see it right now because I can see the poster for In America right now. <laughs> it's but awesome. I mean, John, I mean, not for nothing, John Doe's doing fine. I mean, he just made DOA. And yeah, I heard that was really great. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I want to see it. He was talking about it last time he was on the show. Um, but, yeah, he's he's someone who, you know, just has it. You know, has that look, has has got like he's got that Hollywood, you know, charm. Yeah. I mean, you saw it in decline. Like, you know, everything I, every I wanted to ask you, like screen. you brought up Screeching Weasel and, and Ben Weasel specifically way back when. And I kind of think like both Jawbreaker and Screeching Weasel were two bands that were at least presented to someone like me as a fan as being like heir appearance to like the next band that's going to do it. And, and obviously you guys take different paths and, and pursue it different ways, but neither one of you really seems to go for it. Like, I know you guys signed a DGC, but at the same time, it's not like, you know, you're doing the warp tour and you're like really leaning into that world. Was that a conscious thing or were you trying to pursue it in that sort of way? Or did you want to make it on your own terms? And if it wasn't going to happen on your own terms, it wasn't going to happen. I'm not sure the warp tour was even a thing when we were a band, was it? You know, like Lollapalooza. Well, we, were you like Well, no one ever asked us to go play Lollapalooza. We probably would have done it. I mean, especially if it was like with, you know, fucking Ice T. 
we would have been all over that thing. Yeah, I don't think we were asked to play Warped either. I don't know that we would have done it. It definitely wasn't our... We were pretty... We were kind of like snooty. A little bit. You know, like We wouldn't want to go to play with a bunch of jabronis. Yeah, we probably had a little bit of that. We had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. Like I remember thinking... And I might have mentioned this last time we spoke, but like they offered us, um, fuck, what was it? Oh, Beavis and Butthead do America. And we were like, nah, we're not going to do that. And looking looking back, like big mistake. I think it would have been great to be on that. <laughs> but, but at the time we were like, nah, we're not going to do that. You know, we just fucking sold out. Like, let's not just take the first thing that's offered you know that's going to be a bad look we're still going to play our shows they're going to be eight bucks we're going to go out and play with our friends it's going to be all the same except maybe we'll sell some more records or something so we try to kind of keep it lean and mean still you know well yeah like uh, you know minus those radio shows that you talked about last time you're not really playing the game like there's a, a certain way to do this thing that's like you got to play by their rules and and to agree to all the things and that's the way you know it still might not work out but that's the way to to play this yeah i mean yeah that said they the things that they did offer us that that were compelling to us we we did you know we did all those radio shows and i'm and i'm glad about that because we got to watch oasis and radiohead you know that week or whatever that run of shows and stoked i'm you know i'm so stoked that we did that tour in australia with the beasties and sonic youth and and rancid and bikini kill and pavement and beck like everyone was on that show it was crazy so we weren't totally adverse to it but we were pretty selective you know like if we were fans we would do it but if we didn't give a shit about what was going on we, we wouldn't we wouldn't stoop wait was that a big day out festival in australia it was called Somersault. It was like the uh, the other, right. the alternative. What a lineup. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a flyer for that. That's crazy. And all of you are from punk. Every single band on that had, bill. Not just all of that, if, as if that wasn't enough, but Pavement and the Amps. With Tim oh, Deal. yeah. Tim and the Amps. Oh, and the Foo Fighters, not for And nothing. the Foo Fighters on their first, I think their first time in Australia. Yep. Yep. They went and shot their video in New Zealand for the This Is a Call, like during yeah. that tour. Yeah, it was a crazy bill. Yeah. That, that, but like you must have known a bunch of these people, uh, for like some of these bands, like Bikini Kill and stuff, but like you must have known some of these other people from their pre whatever bands, right? Like Nate had been in Diddley Squad and, and, uh, Sunny Real Estate before the Foo Fighters. Like, I'm sure, like, a lot of these people are people you would have seen on the circuit. I knew I knew William from Foo Fighters. Uh, I mean, we were friends. We knew Rancid from the, the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, but no, a lot of them, I mean, I don't know. No, like, no. Do I know the oh. BC Boys? No. Do I know Pavement or Sonic Youth? No. But, the, but it was well, pretty you, fun to be around them. I'm sure yeah, we, were, was... we were just start, we were starstruck to be in the you know on the same stage as all those people we were like wow this is fucking crazy so i took every opportunity you know like we i i took 
I was like, this is a once in a lifetime thing We're I'm playing basketball against the beastie boys or, or we're, you know, we had to play uh scrabble against, against pavement, you know, like we, we definitely were, knew that it was like a, a thing that, that we're, it wasn't going to happen again anytime soon. You didn't know Malcolmus from, uh, cause like Malcolmus, uh, what was his punk band? Fuck. I always blank on the name, but he had a oh, punk band, Stockton Stockton. band or whatever. Yeah. You know the authorities? I hate cops. I hate cops. No. They're all about no. it was the. It's like a classic kind of, I guess, uh, Stockton kind of punk record from back then. Max Rock and Roll misheard a lyric and and gave him a terrible review. But uh, anyway, that was like Malcolmus's like Big Brothers band type thing, and they were the band that kind of like got his punk band going way back when. So and he was going. He must have seen you guys because he was going to the Gilman for shows. He was telling me he saw No Effects. And off Ivy. Didn't so, he tell you that he had the busy seven inch or something, Blake? He did. He yeah, he 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 passed along a very kind compliment, saying they used to jump around on the couch to that that record back at the house. But this is we after were, we, we really them. didn't know. Yeah. We were new kids in that scene. That was we were very much the young younger ones, you know. It was great though. It was, it was a very friendly thought it was just really well done festival um yeah i also got to fly with lee ronaldo we were we were like aisle mates it was a two 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 seat aisle and he just showed me his sandals the whole trip like from perth <laughs> to adelaide or whatever he had come like with the express purpose of buying these beautiful sandals that he was like every time i'm here i gotta get a pair you know they're just they're great <laughs> that's a cherished memory of mine. <laughs> uh, you guys must have seen them though back in new york right like evolve era oh know? yeah for sure i mean we're a huge fan like i'd see them when i could yeah we saw them in new york and we saw them before that we saw them in la too i'm sure yeah but we weren't the we didn't we never we weren't people that talked to bands like we didn't go up and right not not as fit not when we were kids i would i never wanted to go talk to anybody in band i wanted to watch them play and get the fuck out of there i was scared of musicians yeah i mean it was it was it was different then you didn't really fan you didn't really fanboy out if you did it was just sort of incidental and and kind of like matter of fact like no that whole you know no barrier between the the guys on stage or the people on stage and the audience but i didn't go you know i wasn't like an an autograph hound or anybody yeah i was too shy i think i didn't really roll that was that was why being on that tour in australia was like so crazy because here i was here we were with like all some of our favorite bands ever playing with them i mean it was it was it was crazy. I had to kind of force myself. I was like, I really want to have to go say something to Thurston Moore, you know, or tell him that we used to practice at a space in New York, or that you know that my sister's Kembra or whatever. I I had felt I had to do that, you know, just to have sort of a an excuse for being there, you know. <laughs> See, that's why you guys should have, you know, had the the gift of uh, Punisher itis that I had, which is where you just go up to someone and you just force yourself into the conversation and you're just like let's talk about punk and that then you eventually get a podcast where you get to do it and it's no longer just the weird kid at the show doing it you're doing great 
I appreciate that. I really do. This has been awesome. And uh, I really got to thank you both for agreeing to come back because. Wait a I minute. Just, Let me just ask you something before, before we go away. Are you at a record store? Do you live in a record store? No, this is how I live, dude. Because <laughs> I'm seeing like stacks back there. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's like. Do you have trade cards in there? Oh, you've got them browsable too, right? Oh, yeah. You got... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And divided by country. So this is the world miscellaneous section. And then the Japanese stuff or these boxes and some of these ones. Right like on. But yeah. Do you think there's any record that I have that you don't have? Uh, the the live uh, Jawbreaker record. <laughs> nice callback. <laughs> I'll, see if, I'll see if I got an extra one. Uh, I, well, no pressure on that because, you know, it definitely is now a car payment or two. So Yeah, I could uh, use I could use the two grand. Yes, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's uh, I don't know. It's it's amazing how these things become, you know, such cherished artifacts and become like eventually they're just like cultural touchstones. And I, I'm, you know, I grew up wanting all these records, and and now I'm in a uh, position where I can't afford to buy any of them. So I'm glad I bought them when I did because like yeah, I play. I did. I DJed a set the other night at this bar at the Kilowatt Bar right across the street from me and i did i just played my whole set was just seven inches which was great because i didn't have to look and try to find the groove this is uh i kind of like i don't know i just like 45s more than lps i got some lps but like for me it's like a 45 because any band is capable of a great 45 there are a few bands that would get to like one classic lp let alone a few classic lps but there are a lot of great singles out there by a lot of bands that didn't really do much other than that i did not take good care of my records so i mean they're really they were really scratchy it was a little bit embarrassing that's was... weird though because you were such an archivist too yeah but i didn't really you know i saved stuff but i and then hoarded it but i, di I didn't take great care of everything would you like would your like film stuff like would you take take better care of like you know like one sheets or film posters or certainly dvds i imagine you handle with kit gloves no because really? we had I, because i had a machine that could that could fix them yeah um but i'm pretty yeah i'm precious with my with my my film posters that's for sure i've got a really good one sheet collection that I've been amassing since I was a kid. And then certainly at the video store, I, I would buy them all the time and line the walls with them. I was looking for a seven inch to show you, but I can't find it. So I'm, I'm, that's why I was looking slightly distracted, but I was is there, is there a seven? Is there like a, is there one seven inch that you need to have that you, that you still don't have? Oh yeah. Has... But yeah like the fix vengeance, you know, fix that was on touch and go. No, they did a, they did two seven inches. And there's the one that they only press like 250 of and uh, fellow Portlandier, uh, pig champion, famously went on a road trip to everywhere that they played on a tour to try and find the copies of the seven inch that they had sent out to these clubs as promos in advance or copies that anyone had bought. But um, it goes for like $10,000 now. My friend recently sold his for Holy 10 grand shit. cash. The guy showed up, flew in, handed him a briefcase full of money in the airport, and then just got back on the plane with the record and then left. Holy shit. But there's like, 
there, there's lots, you know, like I, I still would love a copy of unfun on blue. Uh, there's still, uh, the busy seven inch. There's like a, a different color of vinyl for that. I've got the both versions of the first seven inch. Uh, you know, I had a, a second press for years and then found a first press. Um, there's like, what Discord was that? Record. Our first seven inch. Yeah. Your first seven inch. Yeah. There's oh. a second press. And then there's, I found a first press copy a couple years ago and, yeah, there's like, you know, it never ends with records. It now ends because I've got kids and I can't afford to buy the records at the prices they're going for. So, well, anytime you guys want to come on here and talk about music, records, art, whatever, you know, the door is always open. Awesome. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.